It's Thursday, September 14th, and this is the 1909, the State News' weekly news podcast featuring State News reporters talking about the news. I'm your host, Alex Walters. I know it's just week two of this new format, but we're already breaking it just a bit. This week, I'm joined by a non-State Newser. We have Kenny Jacoby, the USA Today reporter behind the bombshell report revealing that MSU football coach Mel Tucker is under investigation for sexual harassment. Then I'll be joined by Theo Shear of the State News to talk about new details in the ongoing search for MSU's next president. With that, let's start the show. The interview you're about to hear was conducted over Zoom. It has not been edited, but we do apologize for some interruptions in clarity. All right, my next guest is here. Uh, Kenny, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Kenny Jacoby, uh, investigative reporter for USA Today. Yeah, so, you know, Kenny, a lot has happened since, uh, and if you're listening, it's it's Thursday. Uh, a lot's happened since uh, your report came out on Sunday. Uh, I guess mainly the suspension of Michigan State head coach Mel Tucker in response. But do you want to, you know, I know this isn't an easy question, but for those who are, you know, under rocks, who are unaware of anything, just kind of tell us, you know, what did your story say, how that came about? Yeah, so the the story that we published on Saturday uh, uh, detailed sexual harassment allegations against Michigan State football coach Mel Tucker by a prominent uh, rape survivor and activist named Brenda Tracy. Um, this is a, a case that has been going on at Michigan State since December 2022. Um, it has been uh, quietly in the background while Mel Tucker has continued to work with the football team and, and coach games. Um, and uh, Brenda Tracy went public with the story over the weekend. And the crux of the allegations uh, that are laid out in her complaint are that Mel Tucker uh, made sexual comments and masturbated without her consent during a phone call in April 2022 in the context of their work relationship. Mel Tucker had hired uh, Brenda Tracy to come speak to his players uh, for the first time in August 2021 and invited her back to campus two more times after that. They had developed a professional bond and uh, Eight months into relationship is when this incident occurred. Mm-hmm. And, you know, since that story has come out, a lot of the discussion and the, you know, we've talked to students and faculty members, there's been a lot of punditry at various sports media, local media, media about whether or not MSU could have, you know, taken actions sooner or should have taken action sooner um, because, you know, the suspension only came after your report sort of publicized this incident. You know, you're not somebody who's just, uh, I guess, kind of aware of the intimate details of this case, but also, you know, you've uh, investigated similar cases across the country at different universities. Uh, I guess, you know, I'm curious, what's your take on that? Do you think it's reasonable to say that MSU should have should have or could have taken action sooner or because of, you know, the confidentiality that's sort of a part of this Title IX process? Um, is that, I guess, an unrealistic expectation to put on these administrators? Yeah, you know, it was well within uh, Michigan State's rights to have suspended uh, Mel Tucker at the onset of the case, I, I believe. Um, mm -hmm. However, you know, doing so carries uh, some consequences that may be unintended. Um, you know, I, I do understand uh, a lot of the criticism over the last few days. You know, uh, it seems like uh, the appearance is MSU is being reactive instead of proactive, um, issuing the suspension without pay only after the story became public. I would, you know, just note that uh, on the flip side of that, you know, hypothetically, if if Michigan State were to have suspended him at the onset of this case uh, eight months ago, uh, there would have been a lot of rumors 
and speculation going around and everyone would want to know why uh, Mel Tucker has been excluded from the football team. Um, and that would be before Michigan State would have done any sort of fact-finding investigation. Mm-hmm. And so that would have drawn a lot of uh, attention to the case in in a way that many sexual harassment victims uh, don't necessarily want. So it was a complicated decision, I think, and they can be, uh, I think the criticisms of it are valid, but um, you know, I, I also understand that it was a, a tricky sort of balance for them to strike. Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, I don't know if you're uh, comfortable talking about this yet, because it's sort of a development in the last couple hours. But Brenda Tracy now through her attorney has released a statement um, saying that part of the reason that she came forward was because there was information that had already been shared, uh, you know, somewhere along the process that was getting out to local media. And she sort of, I guess, wanted to do so with you on her own terms. Uh, can you talk, is that a I guess something you've seen before with schools with the names of claimants getting out in that way? Is that something she had discussed with you? Can you provide, I guess, any additional insight uh, sort of being inside that decision making? Sure. You know, uh, Brenda Tracy, um, she had expressed to me that she wanted to to go through the hearing process um, and 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 complete the the case um, before going public with her story. Um, but she understood that this is such a high profile situation um, and that it would have been very powerful for at any time uh, details of it to leak and her to sort of uh, you know be be outed uh, that she didn't want. Um, and and so you know, her statement today from her attorney uh, essentially says that uh, her hand was sort of full because some somehow uh, details of the case did get uh, leaked out beyond the, the circle of people um, that were supposed to know about it. And um, she felt like uh, it was sort of, uh, she was sort of losing control over it um, and, and decided to share her story at that point. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, uh, last night, Tucker released a statement, you know, for, for the first time, sort of publicly commenting on the accusations and the suspension. And, you know, in short, he kind of denied wrongdoing and characterized the investigation as uh, sort of a malicious attempt to bring him down. But you and your colleague at the Lansing State Journal did some interesting reporting, sort of taking a closer look at his statement. Do you want to talk about that a bit? Yeah, Mel Tucker has maintained since first time he ever spoke to the school about the or that he has been uh, Sorry, falsely accused starting and sort of uh, oh yeah sure yeah just starting um, with, uh, Mel Tucker has maintained sure Mel Tucker has maintained since uh, beginning of the case since the first time he spoke to uh, the investigator that he has been falsely accused um, that he uh, consensual uh, phone sex with Brandy and that in the months leading up to this call, uh, they developed a sort of mutual romance. The statement that he issued yesterday, um, you know, repeats a lot of the same claims saw him make in the investigation report, which Brenda provided us. Um, but I think it's worth noting, and this is what my colleague and I reported last night, is that 
the statement where Tucker goes into some detail about, uh, you know, the what what occurred uh, during this year where he and Brenda were in communication, um, he, he contradicts several of the things that he told the investigator, uh, mm-hmm. according to the case documents that we have. Um, specifically, you know, uh, we we noted that he uh, said in his statement that he he did not cancel a visit for Brenda that had been planned for July 2022, um, which would have been three months after the incident occurred. Um, he said also that uh, he had, in fact, postponed that visit until January 2023. Um, but what he told to the investigator uh, back when he gave his statement uh, in March this year was that he did, in fact, uh, cancel Brenda's visit and that he had no recollection of them ever discussing uh, bringing her back to campus in January 2023 because he said that that wouldn't make sense to do so when some of his new players wouldn't be on campus yet. So we do see him sort of changing his story uh, in his statement and uh, as we noted in our original story, he's done this a few different times now. And does that have any ramification on the hearing process or is, you know, just only the evidence and the statements that were set when the investigative sort of part of the process concluded? Is that all that can go into the hearing or these contradictions that are coming up now as it's become public? Could that affect the case? Yeah, it's a great question. The inherent nature of these cases is that there are often no witnesses and no recordings. Um, And so decisions of who is at fault Uh, often come down to whose account is more credible. Mm. And so these inconsistencies in Tucker's account, uh, of which there are several, um, could really, you know, come back to hurt his credibility later. And it could end up leading to a decision where the university says, you know, uh, this person has has made several contradictory statements. Uh, We we can't necessarily uh, take his word and they may compare that to uh, Brenda's statements and and see uh, whether she made similar inconsistencies. We're not aware of any, and the investigation report did not cite any. Um, They cited a few different ones involving Tucker. So that is the sort of thing that um, could result in him uh, being found responsible if the university decides that his account is not credible. And what about, you know, this hearing that's set for next month? There's been, I think, a lot of confusion about what that might look like, how it can be similar and different from, I guess, you know, sort of the trial process if this were to be a criminal proceeding. Can you talk through, you know, you're somebody who's covered a lot of these processes. What can people expect from one of these, you know, university OIE hearings? What will they know at various times? What will remain confidential? What can people expect for the beginning of October? Yeah, so my understanding is there's a hearing plan for October 5th and 6th, which is during uh, Michigan State's bye week. And under the uh, new Title IX regulation or, uh, implemented in 2020, um, this is how the, the process goes in these sexual har- harassment cases now. First, there is a, um, a fact-finding investigation. Um, in this case, that was completed in July. And then the investigation report from that fact-finding expedition gets sent on to a hearing officer. So Michigan State has hired a, another uh, outside attorney to oversee the hearing. Um, This hearing sort of resembles a trial. Um, 
it's it's different. Uh, you know, it's it's these sorts of cases are just much different than than criminal cases or even civil civil cases uh, in court. Um, but essentially, this is where uh, both sides will get the opportunity to make their case to the hearing officer, to question witnesses, um, to ask questions about the evidence and uh, make points. And uh, at the end of it, the hearing officer is expected to write a report um, where she outlines uh, her decision making um, and you know determines whether or not Tucker violated the school policies on sexual harassment and exploitation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, based on my understanding past public records requests with the university, um, I know that, you know, if there's no finding uh, in the case against Tucker, MSU will not release that, but there is, they will release it. So for people wondering, you know, how much of this process they're going to get to see, I guess, short of, you know, uh, either the claimant or respondent involved releasing it. Can you talk about what will become public and what will stay sort of part of this uh, secretive process? Yeah, so there are a lot of different um, issues that can affect confidentiality in, in these sorts of situations. Generally, um, you know, in, when when these cases involve a student as a respondent, um, federal law prohibits schools from releasing details about uh, about the process, about the case, except for the final if if the person is found responsible. Um, when it comes to employees, the standards are a little bit different. And as I understand, the university will have to make a judgment call about, um, you know, if if he is not found at fault, you know, whether he has a privacy interest in, you know, maintaining the confidentiality of these records. And certainly he does, but there's also an interest um, in the public knowing about uh, what happened involving one of the highest paid uh, employee public employees in the state. Mm. Um, and so the university will have to weigh those interests against each other and make a determination. And I think there's a good argument to make that because this case has already garnered so much uh, media attention and, and interest from the public, that the university may release the documents of the outcome. Um, but if if he is found at fault, I think it's almost certain um, that the records would would made publicly available. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, th- that's all I have for you uh, today, Kenny. Yeah, but thank you so much for coming on the show. And if people want to, you know, as things develop, keep following your work and their coverage, what's the best way for people to keep up with you? Yeah, I, I post all the articles I write on my uh, Twitter account or X, I guess it's called now. Uh, that's my handle is Kenny Jacoby. Um, and you can also find my work at usatoday.com. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show again. It's great to have you. All right. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right. My next guest is one of the best Theos in collegiate journalism. And as far as I know, there are no nepotism allegations with this one. It's State News Administration reporter Theo Shear. Welcome back to the show. Thank you, Alex. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. So, yeah. So you and I have spent the uh, last couple of weeks doing some work looking into the current presidential search that's going on at MSU. So for those acquainted, do you want to say, you know, where where's MSU at? Well, Alex, right now we're still taking applications. Uh, there's a place where you can submit um, applications and also recommend other people for the presidency. Hmm. So we're still looking at those. I see. But of course, you know, uh, we in the general public and the media, we don't know who any of those people are. We'll just know who they pick as president, correct? Yep. The whole search is done in secrecy. Yeah, which is interesting. You know, I feel like if you were picking buzzwords that people use to criticize 
MSU's administration, transparency would probably be the first one. That's been such a thing the last few years, especially since the Nasser scandal. What's the uh, what's the justification, I guess, for that secretive process, especially when trust in MSU's leadership is in such short supply? Absolutely. Well, they say it's for the job safety of those candidates who are being reviewed right now. If they're at their job and they find out that they're also finalists at another search, that could compromise um, their career. They look disloyal, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. And so what about, you know, even if we're not going to know who any of these candidates are, who the finalists are, what are ways that, you know, people in general public who care about this, care about the next leader, uh, what's the pitch for, I guess, how they can get involved in the process? Well, there have been a few input sessions so far. As of right now, that's up to the Presidential Search Committee. It's uh, made up of 20-some people, and they are working to um, look at candidates for the board. And I guess the design of the committee is supposed to be, you know, if we can't all know what's going on, we're represented to an extent by the people on it, correct? It's, you know, students, faculty, different groups. That's the idea. However, I've heard a few complaints about representation on the committee. Mm. Um, I, I interviewed Hannah Jeffrey, the president of the Council of Graduate Students recently, and, and she was worried about the number of business people on the board. Uh, she's one of three students that are represented, um, and she just worries about the balance there. I see. Yeah, and you know, a couple other things that we learned in our reporting. We did have a, a conversation with Dennis Denno, who's one of the members of the Board of Trustees, He's also chairing this search committee that's looking for the candidates. And, you know, he, he refused to say how many people have applied, uh, refused to identify any of the candidates. But, you know, he told us a little bit more than we previously knew, which is that um, he wants somebody who has previous experience running what he calls large, complex, multi-billion dollar organizations like MSU. That's his number one thing. Uh, a commitment to diversity is his number two thing. Uh, and then he said someone who recognizes that sports is the, quote, front porch of the university. Um, and so I guess, you know, asked to elaborate, he said that um, people, in his words, rightly or wrongly, identify universities by their sports programs. Um, and so he thinks that a candidate who recognizes sort of the importance of MSU sports programs could help with, in his mind, uh, application numbers and also mainly with philanthropy, so with donations to the university. Um, and then the other thing he said, too, that was interesting is that, you know, in the previous Stanley search about four years ago when MSU looked for the last president, there was a strong idea that they wanted someone who had been a president of an AAU university before. But um, Denno told me this week, you know, that they're they're not excluding anybody. Uh, and so even if they're not somebody with an academic background, if there's somebody um, in the business world, he said, or even he mentioned candidates in the military world, he said that they've gotten strong applications from them and that they're not going to be discounting them. You know, they're going to be looking at anybody regardless of background. There certainly is a variety of candidates. It really could be anybody. Um, but what I wonder is, do those candidates the board uh, chooses, does that have to be the choice? That's the interesting thing, too. The other uh, point that Denno kind of um, said that I don't know if we've heard before from him is that, you know, this committee, it's, I think, 24 members. They're going to put together finalists of, like, these are the people who we think could be MSU's next president. And they're going to recommend them to the Board of Trustees, which is the governing organization elected by the people of Michigan that oversees MSU. Um, but what Denno said, who's in this interesting position of being both on the search committee and the board, he's one of few people to do that, um, is that the board could, they could interview candidates who aren't com search committee finalists, and they could even pick a candidate who's not a search committee finalist. So there's sort of a, you know, there's going to be a, a bit of this black box, right, where we're trusting as outsiders that the committee is going to, pick these finalists and they're going to go to the board and they're going to select a president. But what he said is that, you know, what could actually happen sort of in these closed rooms is that they could um, they could pick somebody else entirely, uh, which is interesting. I don't know if that's something that we've heard from the board before. That is interesting. Uh, are we going to know anything before the president is announced? 
You know, I, I mean, unless they decide to open it up a little bit more and tell us um, some more about what's going on, I don't know if we're going to know anything more. You know, usually when we at the state news or other media outlets learn something about MSU that they don't want out there, it's almost always through a public records request. But they've been very, very careful about avoiding FOIA um, in this process. They've hired, you know, this outside search firm to uh, it's Isaacson Miller to orchestrate the whole thing so that all the emails with candidates, the invoices for these different meetings and lunches and such, all that is through the search firm. So it's not subject to public records requests. Um, and then the members of the committee have also received guidance about um, FOIA and how they can, you know, they are MSU employees. They use MSU emails that are subject to records requests, but they got a memo from MSU general counsel basically telling them how to handle FOIA, what could and couldn't be FOIA'd. Um, we don't know what that guidance was because actually kind of ironically, when we tried to get that through FOIA, we got it back completely redacted under the attorney-client privilege exemption. Um, but yeah, so I, I don't know, Theo. I don't think we're going to know much more, at least not through any sort of official channels. It'll definitely be something to watch over these coming months. Yeah, and you know, you can stick with statenews.com for all the coverage. Uh, but yeah, thank sure you can. for coming on again. It's always great to have you. Thank yeah. you, Alex. Yeah, I always love to be here. That's all for this week. We'll be back next Thursday with even more stories. Uh, until then, the stories we discussed today and plenty more are available at statenews.com. Thank you to our incredible podcast director, Anthony Brinson, our guests, Kenny and Theo, and mostly to you for listening. For the 1909, I'm Alex Walters.